Welcome to the Invest It Best podcast, a show about investing and financial markets, where you'll hear from some of Australia's top investment analysts and fund managers about their views on the market. The Invest It Best podcast is brought to you by Wilson's Advisory, one of Australia's leading financial advisory firms with a proud and successful history spanning over 125 years. All information discussed in this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. Further disclosures follow at the conclusion Conclusion of the episode. This is the Invest It Best podcast. Welcome to episode one of the Invest It Best podcast, a podcast where we'll hear from expert analysts, advisors, and fund managers from around the country and the world about their views on the market. For episode one, we have a very special guest, David Cassidy, a veteran of the industry that has been advising on money for some of the largest institutions around the world, formerly chief investment strategist at UBS now Head of Investment Strategy at Wilson's Advisory. David, welcome to the Invest at Best podcast. Thanks, Ted. David, you've spent over 25 years as one of Australia's leading investment strategists, working over three different decades, advising in different periods of the economic cycle. Can you tell us a bit about how the current market conditions compare to what you've seen over your career so far? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I thought I'd seen everything, Ted. Um, up until last year when we saw, I guess, effectively what was a once-in-100-year pandemic, which obviously caused quite a bit of panic in markets for a while. But uh, obviously we saw an unprecedented policy response from governments all around the world left us with uh, probably the quickest ever bounce back from a bear market that we've ever seen. So it's been an amazing 20 months or so um, in terms of the absolute panic of last March to the current situation, which is not quite euphoric, but uh, it's certainly been a strong market over the last 18 months or so. Yeah, well, I was interested in your perspective on that, but um, let's shift to our major discussion topic for this episode in that a lot of investors in Australia focus predominantly on equities and property, but there's many other asset classes out there too. Today, we're going to have a bit of a chat about private equity. Let's start off with what private equity is and even some of the different strategies within it. Well, well, private equity, I guess as the name suggests, is the investment in unlisted or, or private companies. Generally, you go into this investment through a private equity specialist, a, a fund that typically takes a you know a three to five to seven year view and, and, and tries to add value in terms of investing in a, a range of, of companies. It could be a domestically focused fund or a globally focused fund. Uh, some time that the focus is early stage or venture capital stage companies providing startup capital to companies that are often pre-profitability, in some cases pre-revenue. The other type of strategy, and I think that's often the sweet spot, is what we call growth capital when companies have reached a, you know, a stage where they're within reach of profitability or have reached profitability, but have still got a significant growth runway ahead of them. They're often you know, small to mid-sized companies, um, but that can often be quite a, a profitable stage to start uh, investing in companies. Then there's finally often the, you know, the domain of the big private equity players, the global players, where they're investing in more mature companies. They call that uh, either buyout or turnaround strategies, where they're looking to add value by either optimizing the cost structure or the debt structure. They're the sort of things you can do in private equity. 
and often it's quite a profitable space to operate in, if we find. All right. Well, I might uh, pull on that thread. That's that's some of the different strategies within PE. Why invest in it? What can it offer investors? Well, if you look at the history of performance, uh, most simply for both global PE funds and, and domestic PE funds, the, the asset class has a, has a very good track record. Uh, when you look at the performance of the, the average manager, typically they have managed to outperform listed equities over the long term. And looking at the, the top quartile in particular, you know, the significant outperformance over listed equities over the last you know, 5, 10, 15 years. So I think most simply, it's, it's proven to be a highly successful asset class, uh, both domestically and, and globally. And I'm, I might actually mention that you've done some um, uh, fascinating research on this outperformance. Can you give us some numbers that we might have seen over the last, say, 10 or 15 years in terms of outperformance? Yeah, well, just looking at, I guess, the, the simple averages um, in, in the first instance, if you look at, um, let's say, the median manager over the last 10 years in Australia, they're in private equity land, they've delivered about 13% per annum. Uh, in contrast, the ASX over the last 10 years has only delivered about 7% per annum. Now, they're just simple averages. There's obviously a, a large variation around that. But um, I think the basic point here is that um, the private equity managers have done you know, relatively well compared to the listed equity benchmarks over the over the medium to longer term. And those strategies that you outlined before, is it fair to say that this is a lever that active management has um, as opposed to passive investments? Yeah, it's definitely it's a highly active you know type of strategy. It's not just about trying to optimize the cost base or the debt structure of these companies. It, it's providing you know expertise across a you know the full spectrum of the company's operations, helping these companies attract the best talent, uh, helping them expand their customer bases, potentially acquiring uh, additional companies, and bringing in you know various types of experts. So it's very much a hands-on active approach that uh, you know, private equity companies are, are utilising. And that outperformance you mentioned over, say, equities in the vicinity of 6 7% um, over you know, a 10, 15-year period. Now, is there a source of this outperformance? And what I mean here is how does it achieve this return over equities? Well, I think partly it does come down to that active management, the ability to, to uh, add value to the, the private companies. There's also, I think, there's a much larger pool of opportunities available to private equity. If you think of the, you know, the ASX, the ASX 200 or 300, you know, it's a fairly small opportunity set. Even in, if you look at the total listed market in Australia, you're talking about 2,000 companies. But if you look more broadly and look at the unlisted space, there's almost, there's almost 25,000 companies with an annual revenue above $10 million in Australia. So it's a much bigger opportunity set than if you cast the net Globally, you're talking literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of companies with that sort of underlying revenue base. So it's it's just a much larger pool of potential opportunity there alongside that active management. And if you, you look just maybe a little bit more closely at what's going on, you typically find the multiples a private equity firm is paying for control of a, a private company. It's, it's a much lower multiple than what you're paying in the, in the listed market. So you've got various ways there that private equity firms are able to add value. And what we've spoken about so far is a lot of 
the positives and the benefits that private equity can provide a, a portfolio. But now I'm keen to um, shift the focus onto uh, any challenges or risks that an investor should consider when investing in private equity, especially any that differ from the usual risks that's entailed in investing in equities. Yeah, well, I think you're right. There's always, there's always risks with any investment, particularly at the growth end of the spectrum. Not always, but you do have to be willing to accept the degree of illiquidity often with, with private equity. Usually these are medium to long-term investments. So you're, you're often talking about tying your money up for you know, periods of three to seven years. Don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Often in investment markets, we talk about the illiquidity premium. And so the, the ability to earn an excess return for that lack of, lack of liquidity is, that, is something that you know some of the big super funds and sovereign wealth funds actively seek out. They, they try and source illiquid assets and earn that illiquidity premium over and above what you can get in listed markets. But there is that illiquidity or lock-up lock you've got to deal with. And as I said earlier, because it's an active strategy, you, you are at the, the mercy of the skill of the, the private equity manager. They do have to make the right calls in terms of buying at the right price, executing the right strategy and, and exiting at the right like price. So um, there is that, I guess, active management risk that you're running. And then there is a, a fairly widespread of performance amongst private equity managers. As I said, the, the average manager does tend to add value, um, but there is a spread of performance in, in private equity land. I, I think it's fascinating what you touched on there, that um, what some may view as a negative, this lockup period and the fact that for four, five, seven, possibly 10 years, there won't be an exit where you can do drawdowns. But some of the endowments and the future funds actually lean into this illiquidity as a benefit to their portfolio. And I'm going to use that for look back at your research, which uh, I touched on earlier. Uh, we can see that private equity looks like it's been a, a great track record over 5, 10, and even 15 years. But the question many might be thinking right now, what makes it still attractive for an investor looking to deploy some capital in today's markets? Well, I think if you look at the multiples where transactions transactions are occurring in the private equity space, even though they've moved up over the last five to ten years, they're still occurring at very lower at lower levels than what we're seeing in the public market. Could you provide so a bit more yeah color on on what those two numbers might look like? Yeah, well, I think if you look at let's call it the mid to small cap end of private equity strategies, companies are changing hands, but between six to eight times. EBITDA compared to let's listed multiples, let, let's call them somewhere between 10 and 15 times. So from that perspective, private equity firms are able to acquire businesses at a materially cheaper multiples. So that's that's a good start. And I, I still think that we've still got a pretty decent runway ahead of us in terms of the global and domestic growth outlook still looking pretty good on a multi-year basis from my perspective. So from that perspective, you know, buying into a private equity firm now, with interest rates low, still reasonably attractive multiples compared to the public markets. I still think the the prospects for the next few years are uh, looking, you know, pretty reasonable to me. Well, fascinating. Well, as mentioned in the disclosure at the start of this episode, this podcast isn't financial advice. But David, I am interested in how an investor could potentially position an exposure to private equity within a diversified portfolio. Yeah, well, we, we tend to see an allocation to private equity as part of investors' alternatives allocation, alternative assets. As you said at the, the outset, you know, I think the thinking historically has probably been that, well, you're in equities, maybe some property, maybe a little bit of cash and bonds. But I think increasingly investors are looking at that alternatives allocation as a source of both 
diversification and potentially added return. So private equity is a big part of that um, from our perspective. And what are some other alternatives uh, that you might see in that bucket too? Uh, well, outside private equity, there's, there's private debt, which often might generate the same level of returns, but can still give you a 5 6% return per annum. Uh, whereas in private equity, the case of private equity, you're looking at you know potentially double digit returns. Um, outside of private debt, there's obviously hedge funds, both, both equity and fixed interest focused hedge funds. And, and those returns are often quite uncorrelated with equities. Uh, and, and bonds. Then uh, we tend to put assets like infrastructure and real property, uh, unless the property into the alternatives allocation. Now, people do tend to classify these things differently, but that's where we put the infrastructure allocation. So they're probably you know some of the, the main forms of alternative assets that that we, we look at, uh, and, that, and they can range from you know growth assets with with higher expected returns than equities, right through to more. You know, more defensive, more steady, mid-single-digit type type returns like private debt. Let's zoom back in on private equity with something you just touched on there, and that is correlations. How does private equity correlate towards, say, equities? Well, there is some degree of, of correlation, but the correlation is fairly moderate. But by definition, by being unlisted, uh, you don't tend to see the same degree of volatility in the performance of private equity from month to month, quarter to quarter, and even year for year. Now, a lot of people rightly say, well, isn't that a little bit artificial because these 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 assets are not trading every day? Um, but I think you've got to accept that equities are very, very schizophrenic. There's something in sort of the finance literature which sort of talks about the excess volatility of equities, that um, you see a lot more volatility in the equity market than, it's re- than really is justified by the underlying volatility of the cash flows. So I think all, all you're really seeing in terms of private equity to a large extent in terms of the lower volatility is the reality that you're valuing these assets on a genuine sort of long-term discounted cash flow basis. So you, you just don't see the same degree of volatility in, in, in private equity performance as you do in the highly volatile you know, listed markets. So from that perspective, you know, private equity does tend to reduce the volatility of your portfolio, particularly in you know, periods of excessive pessimism, such as we, as we saw briefly last year or in the global financial crisis. You, know, you look at the track record of private equity and it is, is a lot less volatile than the, than the listed share market. It's quite fascinating. So if you're interested in further information on private equity, then make sure you check out David's great piece of research on this asset class. It's available on the Wilson's website under the research and insights tab, but I've also put links available within this podcast episode summary too. So let's now shift gears a little and move across to equities. You have also put out another great piece of research this week, David, on value versus growth investing styles. Value investors have been waiting a long time for the pendulum to swing back their way after growth's period of sustained outperformance. Tell us a bit about this dichotomy, David, of value versus growth over recent times. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting one uh, because if you look at value investing, it it, it hasn't had a a great 10 years, really. It's really been about those big cap US tech stocks. That's that's really been where the action's been now for much of the last 10 years, and particularly last five years. And they were once again very strong last year. As we came out of COVID, the market realised that a lot of those cash flows for, for stocks like Amazon were actually beneficiaries of what was going on in terms of COVID and the lockdown. We saw a little bit of a change in market action when we saw the announcement of successful vaccines 
around about early November last year. We saw the market gravitate back towards value, the, the cheaper, more cyclical parts of the market like financials and energy and materials. That lasted for about six months and more recently the market's gravitated back towards those big US growth stocks again. So it's been an interesting you know, couple of couple of years. I, I tend to think the value rally is not over. I think you know we will see another run in value over the coming year or coming year or two as the world continues to to reopen and the recovery broadens out. I, I think some of these neglected cheaper areas of the market have have got scope to do you know reasonably well compared to you know some of the highly priced parts of the market that have had incredible runs over the past one, two, five, ten years. Well, um, I might I might just touch on something you mentioned there. David, and, and that is some of these large tech companies. I think you actually mentioned US tech companies. Um, well, I'm actually keen to speak with you about two large Chinese companies, in particular Tencent and Alibaba, that have had a bit of a pullback in recent times. And I'm interested in your thoughts. Would you now see these as growth or value opportunities now? That's an interesting one. I think potentially you can call these companies value companies now in terms of where they're trading versus what they seem to be offering in terms of the, the exposure to the Chinese and broader emerging market consumer. There does still seem to be a lot of growth potential in these companies over the next five to 10 years. I mean, there is there is a degree of risk to this growth profile in terms of what's going on with Chinese regulation of these companies. Um, but I still think as a central case, there is a lot of growth here. So um, I think it's a rare potential opportunity, not without risk, but it's a, a rare potential opportunity of value-like valuations with, with you know, quite a, quite a lot of growth potentially. But, you know, th th there is risk there in terms of what's going on um, on the regulatory front. So, you know, we tend to, you know, say you'd have a, a limited exposure or diversified exposure to these sorts of companies. Um, but yeah, they, I think they, they are looking potentially interesting at, at these sorts of levels, given the rough run they've, they've had over the last sort of six to nine months. Okay. Let's zoom out from the specific value versus growth battle to investing more broadly. Australia and overseas have been performing you know, quite well for a period of time now. I'm interested in your thoughts. What's driving this sustained period of above average growth? Um, well, I think if you're talking from a, an economic basis, you've got to remember that the, the world economy basically shut down in the second quarter of last year. So from that perspective, you've got that sort of reopening impetus or a certain perspective, you've got very low base effects. So you're rebounding off a, a very disrupted, very low, low base. Uh, so that's part of what's going on. So in some ways, I, mean, I guess the pessimist would just say, well, it's just a bounce back off an artificially depressed level. But you've also got a lot of stimulus still working its way through the system. Governments around the world put a lot of money into the global and domestic economy to support things last year. And I think that that money is only being progressively released back into the, the economy. And I think if you look at household balance sheets on average, both here or in the US or in Europe, there's, there's still a lot of pent up demand to get released as we re reopen over the next you know, 12 months or so. So I think that's also part of the story in terms of why growth is coming back quite fast. Obviously, we've seen another pretty significant hiccup in Australia with the lockdowns again in New South Wales and Victoria recently. But I think ultimately, when these economies you know, do reopen, they're, they're going to bounce pretty hard, I think. Yeah, pent up demand. Now, David, are there any other items on your watch list right now that we haven't discussed yet? 
Yeah, no, inflation's always an interesting one, and in particular, what is right at the moment, prima facie, quite a high level of inflation versus what is still a very low level of interest rates, uh, measured either by you know, the cash rate or the, the long-term bond rate. I, I think there is a degree of transitory inflation in the system. You've probably heard a lot about this debate around transitory versus permanent inflation. I think... Um, if you look at the US in particular, which is now starting to, 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 to reopen or has been on that path for a while, there's a fair bit of inflationary pressure in the system. You've got inflation up above 5% at the headline level. It's starting to come off that elevated level, but I guess the issue is just how much does it come down? and When does it find a base? I, I am in the camp that it does come off the, those peaks, those recent peaks, but perhaps it doesn't come down quite as much as the, the bond market expects it. Too, you might find it is a little bit sticky. I think we're talking about five percent inflation as your base case for the next year or two, but 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 maybe it, it proves to be a little bit sticky and doesn't actually get down, back down to that sort of one and a half two percent level we've grown accustomed to over the last five to ten years. So that that'll be interesting. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I think I've I've seen uh, like the price of lumber in the US, you know, really spike with demand and come back as supplies come back, but I'm sure not everything will be able to respond as quick. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think um, yeah, it's, there are signs that things are easing off, but still, I think there's still a lot of blockages in the supply chain. So perhaps inflation could prove a little bit more stubborn than the, certainly the bond market seems to be pricing at the moment. Okay, that's what's on your financial and investing watch list. But David, I'm, I'm interested in what's on your other watch list. So um, let's step away from financial markets for a second. You're in Sydney, I'm in Melbourne, we're both in lockdown. So what else has been getting your attention outside of the markets? Any TVs, books, podcasts that have uh, caught your attention? I don't know. I've got, I got uh, three school-age kids who spend a lot of time on their various devices. So there's always a challenge to, <laughs> well, I guess in terms of um, keeping them on devices, but just getting them in the same room is a challenge. So in terms of uh, uh, doing things with the kids, it's... Um, a bit of a challenge, but um, try and get out walking as a family as, as much as we can. But it's always a, a major logistical exercise to get them out the door. On the TV front, it's hard to get uh, some sort of cross-generational consensus. Um, it seems like The Voice is the, the one where we can sit down as a family and at the moment and we seem to all enjoy that. Um, so we're watching the, the Voice as a family every sort of Sunday, Monday night at the moment. Um, but generally, it's pretty hard to find a a show that we can all watch together and yeah, stay stay focused. Yeah, well, uh, my kids are, are far younger, are five, three, and eight months. So, um, uh, um, no, no communal watching of uh, of shows. I, personally, <laughs> I've been watching um, White Lotus, a show um, okay. listeners may be familiar with on Binge, which has got this fantastic um, character in it, who's actually played by Murray Bartlett, uh, someone who I'd never seen before. Um, I looked, looked him up on IMDb and turns out he's, he's been a bit of a home and away in Neighbours and Secret Life of Us actors. So I, I'm tipping this guy who many of us had never heard of before to have, for his career to take off. So that's something which people are, are looking for, something for, for some entertainment. I highly recommend. But um, okay, David, thank you for taking the time for the chat today on this special inaugural episode of the Invest at Best podcast. Thanks, Ted. It was a pleasure to be here. Now, I'm pretty keen to have you on as a regular guest on the show. So for, for listeners, if you got value from what was discussed today and interested in hearing 
further episodes, then make sure you subscribe to the show. As I may have mentioned before, I've also put links to David's great research in the podcast episode information. So if you're listening to this via Apple Podcasts or Spotify right now, just have a look out for those links in the episode summary section. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to receive all new Invest at Best episodes as they come out. David's research is also available on the Wilson's website, wilsonsadvisory.com.au under the research and insights tab. Okay, that's a wrap for the debut episode. Episodes to come out fortnightly from here. I hope that you can join me. See you next time on the Invest It Best podcast. This podcast has been prepared by Wilson's Advisory. Wilson's has not independently verified any of the information given in this podcast and no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made as to the accuracy or completeness of the information and opinions contained therein. All effort is made to ensure information was accurate at the time of recording. No reliance should be placed on this podcast in making any investment decision and past performance is no indication of future performance. The directors of Wilson's advise that they and persons associated with them and Wilson's may have an interest in financial products referred to in this podcast. 